0: want to welcome you to Redeemer. If you're new, uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And I had Bentley read this section already. And just to give you a 30,000 foot view, we're going to spend two weeks in the same text. And here's why. Um, I think one of the um, issues that Paul is addressing in this particular passage is the nature of, of, of the sexual sin And so we're going to have part one today and part two next week. And so just track with me today. We're going to expose uh, and and sort of look at biblical sexuality and and expose some of the lies that I think we believe and and find the hope that we have in the gospel. And next week we'll look at the same passage and see if there aren't uh, practical things that we can do to fight that good fight and come alongside brothers and sisters who are in the struggle. So two weeks, same text. If you see me not talk about a verse today, I promise you we're going to talk about it the next time we're in the book, all right? So let me pray for us. The text has already been read. Our Father, we turn our hearts to your word and we believe what we just saying, that you are uh, the strength and portion of our life, that we look to the hills and, and there is our help. And we need you, Father, now to listen and to rightly divide the word but even more so when we leave this place, it's easy to have lofty discussions. It's easy to look at truth when we're here and it's safe and it's air conditioned and we're with God's people. It's a whole nother reality when we leave this place. And so we need you now and we need you in our going out from here. And so would you draw near to us by your spirit for the glory of Christ and bless the preaching of the word in Jesus name, amen. There was a rabbi who was, uh, had a student and he was teaching this student, and, and as rabbis do, he taught in a parable. And the rabbi starts this lesson with his student and he says, long ago, there was a little skylark and he was flying in the land. And all of a sudden, a great drought came upon the face of the earth, which made it uh, difficult for the little skylark to come to the ground and to find food. And so because the ground was dry, the worms weren't weren't moving. And so the little skylark was getting very, very hungry. And all of a sudden, the little skylark, he heard the sound of a peddler walking through the barren land. And the peddler says, worms, worms, get your worms, 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 get your worms. And so the little skylark flew closer to the peddler. Could this be manna from heaven? Thought the little skylark free worms. I don't have to work. I don't have to wait. I don't have to toil. And he drew closer to the peddler. And there was a strange voice. And there was a strange man that the little skylark had never seen before. And he drew closer to the peddler. And the peddler says, worms, worms, get your worms, two worms for one feather. And all of a sudden, the skylark realized that these worms weren't free. But the peddler promised them, get your choice worms, juiciest worms. Take the pick of the litter. They're yours. It'll cost you two feathers. And so the little skylark said to himself, man, I have a lot of feathers. Surely missing two won't hurt. And so the skylark made the transaction. He plucked out two of his own feathers and he gave it to the peddler. And he got to choose the choicest worms that he could get. And his stomach was full. This went on the next day. And it went on the day after that. And it went on for a time that as the skylark started to go out to get food from the ground, the sun seemed a bit brighter and it started to take more energy to dig. And so he he went for the path of least resistance. I'll just go back and get my food from the peddler. And so we went back again and he gave uh, two feathers and got four worms. And then he tried to fly and he couldn't because he has exchanged all of his feathers for worms from the peddler. And at this point, the rabbi, the the teacher, the student looked at the rabbi, rabbi and he saw tears running down his eyes. And he says, good teacher, why are you crying? And he said, beloved student, the heart of God breaks when we trade our feathers for worms from the evil peddler. That's the introduction to a book entitled Surfing for God. And it's a book about sexual sin. And it's a book about the gospel way towards being whole again. And in that book, the author says that sexual sin is a lot like the little Skylark, that rather than wait and rather than work and rather than pursue and and trust uh, things in God's own timing, we end up uh, recoiling from that to making deals with the evil one. And in the moment, it sort of feels like we have our choice. It feels like everything is at my disposal, but he makes the case that that every glance and every click and every look that we're trading feathers. And we look up and we've given so much of ourselves to the enemy that we can't fly and that we are naked and it's obvious to those who love us and know us that we have been dealing with the devil. And he, he goes on to talk about the, the stakes cannot be higher, that marriages are falling apart, that families are being separated, that men and women are losing jobs, that trust is being betrayed, that those areas of sexual chastity and, and waiting, that, that these are bygone terms Uh, That we are ministers are not immune from this, that ministers are being disqualified from ministry all because we're trading our feathers for worms. Now, here's the thing that that if we're going to rightly divide the word of truth, then we have to sort of look at the whole counsel of God. And sexual sin is something that Paul talks about in almost all of his letters. That it's, it's, it's hard to pick up any book in the scriptures and not see it. And it's not just restricted to the New Testament, that if you look in the Old Testament, there are warnings all over it. For men like Abraham, who had the side chick, right? Hagar, the, his servant, that his own wife actually told him to go and lay with. So she is culpable in that to Jacob, who, who had two wives, to David, who killed his own friend Uriah that he might cover up his sexual sin with her, to men like Samson in Judges 16, who lay with the prostitute and then gave his strength to Delilah. And it's not restricted to a problem that men have. The Bible speaks of women like Rahab, who was in Jericho. It speaks of the woman in John chapter four, who was working on her fifth marriage. It speaks of the woman in John chapter eight, who the scriptures say was caught in the act of adultery. It speaks, it speaks of the woman in Luke seven, who is a woman of the city, right? So if, if you were to look at scripture, scripture would say that this is not A male problem or a female problem a man problem or a woman problem it is not a rich problem or a poor problem this is a sin problem and here's what the world does the world tries to say it's those people over there right so if you're an older adult and you have teenagers your tendency might be it's just those crazy teenagers right and here's the thing Men who have been married for 20 years, leave their wives for mistresses. It happens. I don't know if you saw the, the, the first Birth of a Nation that was directed in 1915, and not the newer one, but the first one that, that Woodrow Wilson showed at the White House, and it, 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 it was this, this almost this worship of the Ku Klux Klan, and, and in that, in 1915, in that movie, the black man was was painted as this sex crazed animal. Right. And here's the thing, that stigma, it stays. And here is what we know on this side of the civil rights movement and this side of slavery and this side of Jim Crow, that it was white men also. Right. It was white men who took black women. And so the tendency to say that, no, they, it's them. They have a problem. History shows nobody. You aren't immune from this either. Okay, well, I know who it is. It's, it's, it's the people in the ghetto. She got 10 kids. Or, or what about the trailer park mom? Were well, they not keeping high profile escort services in business. Wow. <laughs> you get it? What's well, a man thing. No, there's a recent article where young ladies don't even have to go to Sally May no more to go to school. You get it? The Bible And history would say that this is not a race problem, a gender problem, a skin problem. This is a sin problem. And we're all broken and we're all guilty. Now, I want nothing more than for us to honor the Lord with our bodies, to take seriously what his word says and to let the gospel speak into our sexuality. I side with a group of scholars that believe that from chapter 5, 1, all the way through five twenty one, the overarching theme in here is sexual immorality. I also think that the reason right after Paul brings up sexual immorality, the next thing after it is wives submit to your own husbands. Husbands love your own wives. Then so why would he talk about sexual immorality and sexual sin and then move right into marriage? You see? And so, that's what I want us to look at. It's gonna be a three-two-one format. I want us to look at three truths. I want us to look at two lies. I want us to look at one savior. What are these three truths? I, want to, I think they get at the heart of God's design and his delight in healthy sexuality. That's the first thing. It's going to be three truths. Now, here we are on a timeline. If you were to put a timeline together and say, all right, this is where we are in 2018. And if you were to go back 2018 years, you'd be sort of maybe right here, right? Right? and you have to go all the way back over here, maybe out that room, maybe if you were to look at creation. But here's the thing that I know about time. I know the farther you get from the beginning, the more warped things get to be. And if we're gonna have a biblical, robust, healthy sense of sexuality now, then we can't look within our own generation for guidance you actually have to go all the way back over here to the beginning to look at how God designed everything to be. And here is what you discover when you look at the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, that, that in six days, the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. And on the sixth day, he created Adam. And I believe in a literal Adam. I believe in a literal Eve. I believe in a literal uh, 24-hour day. I think when you look at days in Genesis, I think they're literal. And so I believe that Adam was created first because the Bible says he was. But I also believe that Eve was created on the same day, later in the day, whatever that time gap. I don't know. But here's what we do know, that Adam was created first. And he was told to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to rule and to subdue it. And God did something to him. Right. And I think this was this was the humor of God. Right. God really gave him something that he really could not do on his own. He could not be fruitful. He could not multiply on his own. And so the scriptures read in such a way that God brought the animals to Adam. Adam, what do you want to call that animal that God created, had created on the prior days and Adam named it and the name stuck? So Adam had power that was understood as authority. Adam also had proximity to the Lord. The Lord God walked with him and talked with him. He saw his maker, right? So he had power and proximity. And and Adam also had possessions, right? That when you look at what Genesis read, what it says about the fine and precious metals and, and the rivers that were on the face of the earth, these things all scream stewardship that God created the earth and he put these things in the earth and as Adam was the only man on the earth created in the image of God, it was understood that Adam had stewardship or lordship, vice lordship over the things on the earth. And here's what you get in scripture, but it was not good for the man to be alone. Now, here's the thing. The irony of that is that comes after Adam gets to name the animals. And so it reads as if Adam sees pairs of animals frolicking in the in the garden and he and and they come to him and he names them. And it reads as if he's like, man, wait a minute. They have pairs, but there is no one like me. And God says, aha, it's not good for a man to be alone. You're on to something. And so the scriptures say that the Lord God calls a deep sleep to come upon the man. And the Lord God took a rib from the man and the Lord God went away and the Lord God formed the woman. And then the Lord God walked the woman down the aisle and the Lord God woke Adam up and and put Adam in front of Eve. And Adam sees his wife and he says, at last. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, it's a song, it's poetry. It's the first song in your Bible. It's right there when Adam saw Eve at last. Now, think about the irony of this. They were created on the same day. And what he says is, these hours without you, my beloved, have felt like an eternity. That's poetry, right? It's beautiful. And he says, at last, bone of my bone. You're like me. You walk upright. We 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 get one another. We're alike. And they were naked and they were not ashamed. No problems with intimacy, no problems with transparency, no barriers between them connecting on a body and soul and heart level. And it was the same way with their relationship with the Lord. Nothing separating. Now, that's not the only relationship you see, right? That if you turn over to Genesis 29 and you get this story about Jacob and Rachel, it says that he worked for seven years for Rachel, but they seemed to him to be but a few days because he loved her. You know, my mother-in-law made me wait a year, right, to marry my wife. And I'm thinking like seven. And he says, it feels like a few days. You get the imagery? Have you read the book Song of Solomon? It's a front row seat into a man and woman pursuing one another. Listen to some of the words from that book. Let my love kiss me with kisses from his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Draw me after you, beloved. Let us run together. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. How charming you are. I slept, says the woman, but my heart was awake. I heard a sound and it was my lover knocking. Open to me, my love, my dove, my perfect one. And so I arose and I opened myself to my love. Use your Holy Spirit imagination, right? Have you read Proverbs? My son, delight in the wife of your youth. Let her satisfy you at all times. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing waters from your own well. Let them be for you alone. Do not drink from another well. Do not share your water with strangers. Bless your fountain. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her satisfy you at all times. Be drunk with her love. You see that? Be drunk. You got to hear somebody say Beyonce. I heard it, Right. <laughs> I said it before, I said I wasn't gonna say it again, but Beyonce owes some royalties to the scriptures, right? <laughs> Look, this is in our Bibles, family. And we have to hear that because we're hearing another narrative. That there's a book, if you want the title of it, see me at the back door. There's just some, this guy sort of analyzes Hollywood and he interviews some of the big movers and shakers in Hollywood. And he's trying to tap into why do you write what you write? Why do you show what you show? And he exposes this agenda. It really is an agenda to undermine Judeo-Christian values. He says nobody wants to watch a normal couple live intimately before one another in the sanctity of marriage. That doesn't sell. And so that, that's the reason out of 10 different shows you watch, where there is some type of emotional, sexual connection, one out of 10 will be between two married people. Nine out of 10 will not be. Because Hollywood does not care. It does not sell. And let's not even talk about music. Your mind is, your body's here with me, but your mind is on the other side of town. You messing me around. I see some of y'all, that's, that's like, I took it way back, right? But here's the thing, I don't listen to country music, but I've heard a few country songs. Country is guilty about taking somebody else's wife or man. Hip hop is guilty, right? Trap music is guilty. R&B is guilty. Look. There is not one genre of music that has the up here that, 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 that everything we're listening to or that's out there that's begging to be listened to, it's undermining a lot of this. And here is what we have to remember. Let it never be said that God is anti-pleasure. God is pro-pleasure. He is pro-satisfaction. He is pro-intimacy. He is pro all of that in the context of marriage. And so here are three things that you have to stand on. First, God made us as intimate beings to have deep connections with one another. Other humans, he's made us to know. So part of what Adam sees in Eve is you're not an animal and you're not a bird and you're not a fish and you're not a tree. You're like me and therefore we can agree and talk and do life together. That's there on a relational level. What's beneath that also is a need for sexual intimacy. And, I, and I, I, I won't call it a need. I want to say it's a gift. The gift of sexual intimacy in the context of marriage. God says yes. And God created marriage between one man and one woman to be the place where this intimacy is expressed. Remember what I told you. This is a new church. It's a young church. Jew and Gentile. And notice that Paul is laying down the ethical code for them to move forward. Notice that this is the do not commit adultery. That's what this is. And wrapped up in it is also do not covet because the 10th commandment says you shall not covet anything that is your neighbors, including their spouse. And that's why you see covetousness in this same section as well. But may it never be said that God is anti-pleasure, anti-intimacy, is for it. Now, if those are three truths that are true, then why is it so hard? Why do we see the carnage? Why is it difficult? And I think because there are two lies we believe. And I think this is where we're getting into man's distortion and destruction. So what are the two lies? on the one hand, it's easy to say, okay, we're sinners. And and, and I don't know about you, but that, that works for me, but then it doesn't work because it, it can seem like this blanket statement and, and we just accept it and we don't sort of dig into why we fall into sin to begin with. And I think that That behaviors are always functions of what we're believing beneath the behaviors. And so if there is wrong behaviors, then there is something that we're not believing down here. And this is what I want us to get into. What are some of the lies that are down here that show itself up here in sexual immorality? And so I think, look, I think Satan masters the the under-over technique. I just made that up. Not just like just made it up, but... You probably won't find that anywhere, but I, I, I just don't think he's that brilliant, right? I, I think he does the same thing over and over and over again. I think the same way in which he deceived Adam and Eve is the same way he deceives people. He, I don't think he has like sort of new kind of things. I think he works kind of the same way. He's effective, right? But here's, here's what we know. Think about the garden. Uh, here's what I mean by, by the, uh, by the, by the under over. I think Satan minimizes or he undermines something that is really important. And then he maximizes or, or takes something that should not be as important. And he gives it sort of, he, he, he makes it more than what it should be. And here's, here's the case of it, right? You remember when God told Adam and Eve, you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And in the Hebrew, it's, it's da-da, like it's da-da, yeah, you're going to die. Die, die. Right. And here's here's what Satan does to Eve. You know, he, he comes to her and he says, what are, what are you doing? No, you won't surely die. You, you, you won't die. Like 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 right there. Do you, you see what he does right there? He takes something that God says, no, you're going to die, die. He says, no, 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 no. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. And then he, he tricks her. Right. Oh, God is holding out. He knows that the day that you eat of this, you'll be like him. I'm like, didn't God just make us in his image? How much more like God do we need to be without being God? Right. But that's what he does. He takes this good thing, the image of God. That's really important. But you know what he does? He puts some air in it and he makes it bigger. And so all of a sudden, Eve is caught in this matrix. Right. On the one hand, he's minimized the wrath of God. On the other hand, he's made her uh, discontent with her state as a creature. And so all of a sudden you got these two things happening at the same time, minimizing wrath. And and I want to be like God, be like God. And here's the thing. It's no different than what Paul was going through in this text. Now, how do we know? Here's lie number one. God does not care about what we do with our bodies. Sexual sin is no big deal. Indulge, satisfy it. What wrath? I can satisfy this and I can still get up and go to work. What do you mean? What do you mean judgment? You see, it's it's real subtle. And that's exactly what you see in the text. Look at at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper of the saints. Notice that triad of words, sexual immorality, impurity, or covetousness. Covetousness is desiring wrongly what and who is not yours. That idea of impurity, it, it, it's, it's impure behaviors or impure postures that might lead to, to more grievous behaviors. And then that word right there for sexual immorality, it, it's where we get our word pornography from. So that word for sexual immorality, it's pornea, right? And so in Paul's day, you had all types of sexual sin, fornication, adultery, bestiality, I, I mean, just all this kind of crazy stuff. And if you wanted to sort of catch it all in a, the word pornea, It was kind of the catch-all bucket. And so here's what Paul is saying, none of this needs to be named among you. None of this, it does not need to be named among you as a child of God. None of it. Now, look at what he says in verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, right? He brings those same triad of behaviors. He pushes them down. He says, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the, the, the sons of disobedience. Look at verse 10. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Look at verse 17. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do you see what he says? Look at, look at it. Look at verse five. You can be sure of this, that everyone, right? Look at verse six. Let no one deceive you. So what, you see the emphasis He says, be sure of this. Let no one deceive you because they were being deceived and they were unsure of this. They were minimizing the wrath of God. And Paul says, nobody, you don't need to do that. Let me tell you, everyone who does this, you get it? So what is he doing? He says, no, the enemy is minimizing wrath. Let me tell you, everyone who does this, everyone, you don't get a pass on it. That's the clue that Satan had made them bite the bait. That sexual immorality is not—it's not, it's not a big deal. He says it is a big deal. Now look at what he says in verse 11. He says, "Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness." And, 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 and here's the thing that Paul does, right? We, we don't know what he means. I think he means those three things, that triad of behaviors and dispositions earlier. But I think when you also go down and look at verse 18, do not be drunk with wine, I think what, what we're starting to see is, is, is there, there was probably something so sinister that Paul did not even want to talk about it. Now, how do we know he didn't want to talk about it? Because look at what he says in verse 12. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. So you got to understand that when Paul talks about these works of darkness and these things that he is withholding by because he's led by the spirit to not go into detail about what's going on. You get to the bottom and you see them drinking wine and, and you look at where he's doing ministry in Ephesus or in Asia Minor. What we know from the book of Acts Acts 19 is that when Paul went to Ephesus, there was this great uproar, and the people says, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and she was the fertility god. One of the seven great wonders of the world was her temple. And if I showed you a picture of Artemis, she's this woman with these breasts, like, all over her, right? And so the image here is what we think is happening behind the scenes is that you had Christians being told, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Come on over here. Come on over here. Get drunk and come on over here and worship Artemis and worship in the temple with prostitutes. And what Paul is saying, be not deceived. Minimizing, minimizing, minimizing. Now, here's the question. How did you get to that point? because there's an exaggeration that's also happening. Minimizing wrath, and something else is brewing in the heart of sexual sin. And this is lie number two, that sex is the most important part of my life, and I must satisfy these desires on my own terms. You see? It's an inflation. Minimize wrath. Overinflate this thing that is good and make it ultimate. How do we know that that's what's happening? Look up in verse five. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous. Look at that bracket. That is an idolater. Now, y'all. Track with me up here for a minute. He's naming it. It's idolatry. It's the breaking of the other commandment. And what is idolatry? Idolatry is a dethroning of Yahweh, a dethroning of of living my life before the gaze of God, accepting my lot and honoring him and having him on the throne. Idolatry says no. No. I don't want to worship you. I want to put something else on the throne of my heart, and that is what I will worship. And what had become here? And so that inflation of sexual desire, it eventually bubbles up, and it becomes the throne. It becomes on the throne. And when we we enthrone sexual desire and make it ultimate, then guess what? We will functionally worship it. And we will functionally worship it by throwing off the commandments of the Lord and twisting our lives and our bodies and using it to gratify this. And that is why you see worship in the passage. You see them worshiping their sexuality with how they're using their tongues. Look at it. And, and, and this, I think it, can, it doesn't have to be physical speech. It can be keyboarding. It can be anything we do to convey Something, look at what, all right, when we were in Ephesians chapter 4, go turn back to 429. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Track with me. When the Lord is on the throne, your mouth is his. And the tongue that he gives us, it gives grace to those who need it. Now, flip it. When God is not on the throne, then he does not have lordship over my speech. And if, if sexual pleasure is on the throne, then you can best believe I'm going to use my speech to worship the God that is right there. And that is why, right after he talks about sexual sin, he goes right into verse four let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. You hear what he's saying? I see what's happening. I know what's on your throne because I see how you talk. Your speech is filthy. What you're doing with the keyboard is filthy, and I see, I see what your functional God is. You have, have exchanged the worship of God, the creator, for created things, and it's starting to show in your speech. That's not the only place it shows up. It shows up in how they're using alcohol. Look at what it says in verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine. Now, here's the thing. I'm not here to advance any agenda, right? Right? So whatever my convictions are about alcohol and the youth, let's kind of throw them outside. Here is one thing we, we can't really argue with. That Paul tells Timothy to drink a little wine for your stomach. That the psalmist says wine makes a man's heart glad. That when Jesus goes into a wedding in Cana of Galilee, that he turns water into wine And he does it and he creates the best wine they had ever tasted. So wherever you are with your personal conviction, I'm not here to judge that. I'm just saying that what we can't walk away from the scripture is that alcohol is totally bad. That when Jesus instituted the sacraments, he did not do bread and water. He did not do bread and Sprite or bread and sweet tea, right? It was bread and wine, right? That when you look at Deuteronomy chapter 14, that Israel is actually commanded, right? To throw a great party, invite everyone, even the poor people who don't have anything, invite them and go get your ribeyes and your filet mignon and the best fish you can find and throw a party and have strong drink And 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 make your hearts glad in the Lord. Do it together before the Lord, giving thanks. And there is a reason why Paul says that. Look, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. And so, wherever you are with alcohol, one thing that we cannot say about the scriptures is that. Look, it's a gift, and it's dangerous. And it can be abused and misused, just like any other gift that God gives us. All, they all can be idols. But what you see in the scriptures is that, that this idea of wine, that it has a, has a positive use of it in the scriptures. And here is what you see them doing. They're taking something that is to be done in moderation. He says, Timothy, drink a little wine. They're taking something that that should be done in moderation. This was only one feast out of a year. God didn't say get drunk every day. Like he he just didn't do that. But there there was some moderation in that, right? They're taking this one thing that, that was good to show gratitude in the company of God's people. And they're turning it. And using it to numb and to go into the den of prostitutes and to join with them. That's not the only thing they're abusing. Look at, what, look at what else he says. The psalmist prayed in Psalm 39, Lord, teach me to know my end, the measure of my days. Remind me how fleeting I am in Psalm 90. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And so if you were to ask a, 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 a believer, what is time like like time of itself is to be stewarded by by God's people. and and, and use in such a way that we find God out and that we use it to the glory of God, time, that's just a prayer of the psalmist. Help me to number my days. Help me to see how fleeting I am. Help me not to waste my life. Help me to know that I'm a breath. I'm here today and I'm gone tomorrow. Help me to know that tomorrow isn't promised, right? Help me to know that the ways of judgment can come upon me right now. That's a prayer. And look at what Paul has to tell them in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as, wise, as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time. You see what's happening? Time, this gift that God gives us to love him and to know him and to serve him, to do the deeds of light. Paul is saying you're walking unwisely and you're not using your time well. Why? Because something else was their functional God. And when something else is the functional God. You, you and I. We will obey it. That's how they got there. And that's how we get there family. We get entangled into sexual sin. For the same way. We think that God doesn't see and we think that there is no harm and we think that his wrath is not real and so we dibble and we dabble and we play you want to kill a family and crush a wife and crush a husband and crush your children and complicate family ties and crush a community and exchange your feathers for worms so that you can't fly and soar and bring shame upon the glory of Christ and yourself play with it and minimize it. And we usually get there the other way as well. We were wired for intimacy, but sexual intimacy is one of many ways God designed us to connect with other humans. The need for intimacy in general is ultimate. Sexual intimacy is not ultimate. It's a good gift, but it is not the ultimate gift. And one of the lies from the pit of hell is that you and I are sexed, crazed machines and that we have to have it and we can't restrain it. And God is saying it's good, but it is not ultimate And we know it's not ultimate, right? We know it's not ultimate. Paul says, I have a right to take a believing wife with me, but I don't. I deny that part of who I am. He's not dying without it. Jesus did not get married. The widows in 1 Timothy 5 who outlived their husbands, and it seems like they weren't old ladies, They were young. So Paul has to say, wait a minute, she at least has to be this age. And it wasn't 85, right? We're talking about women who had husbands. And all of a sudden, that gift is taken because he is taken. And all of a sudden, this widow denies herself there. And you know what? She is intimate. She is washing the feet of the saints. She is discipling people and practicing hospitality. She might not be sexually intimate family, but she is connected to people in a deep, an emotional way. Do not believe the lie. We're humans. We're not sex-crazed machines. Now, we also know this true because Joni Erickson Tata, right? Some of y'all know that name. I'm gonna implore you to go listen to this. She was interviewed by Larry King, and I, I, I get mad, like I, I read it, and I actually got mad. I, I, got, I just got mad listening to him And how he was talking to her and she was just so gracious in her transcript and he's going on and on but how like like how does this work she's a quadriplegic right and so she she injured herself in a diving accident and and fractured some vertebrae in her back and so she has no use of her arms or her legs and so Larry King is like wait a minute you mean tell me this dude who can walk he want to marry you and she's like yeah Well, what do y'all do about that? And and, and she says, well, that's not the priority in our marriage. Well, what did people say about that? Well, some people told us to go off and try some things out. But that would be dishonoring to the Lord. And And he just keeps going in. But what about that? You have no feeling below your neck. And this is what she tells Larry King. This is what she writes. Right. Larry, pardon me. There is more to romance than what happens beneath the neck. The joy, the commitment, the love, the affection, the respect, the honor, the duty, the devotion between me and my husband is more precious than what most couples ever discover. She got him in check, right? (laughs) Time will not permit me to talk to you about B.B. Warfield, who was a professor whose wife was, I think she was struck by lightning on their honeymoon. And she was an invalid and he cared for her until she died. I could give you person after person after person, and what they're telling us with their testimony is that sex is good, but sex is not ultimate. Gotta hear that, because I think we think it is sometimes. Now, I'm gonna finish up with this last point. Three truths, two lies, and there's one savior who helps. You have to know, beloved, that the work of Christ deals with the penalty and the guilt for all of your sexual sin. Redemption even touches there. There's a reason I gave you the names of Abraham and Rahab and Samson and Sarah and all those names I gave you at the beginning. There's a reason. And you wanna know what that reason is? Turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. In my Bible, it's 1008. And go down to, I mean, for those of you who don't know, this is what we would call the hall of faith. These are the men and women that the author of Hebrews is propping, they're propping them up before us as examples of men and women who died in faith, here is what you will see. Look at verse eight of chapter 11 on 107. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out of a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going by faith he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob heirs with, the, with him of the same promise for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Look at verse 11. Okay, we're going to bring up Sarah. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she had considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born born descendants as many as the stars. By faith, look at verse 17, Abraham when he was tested. Look, you can go through here later. Let me tell you what you're not going to find in the hall of faith you're not gonna find any record of their sexual sin. Rahab's sin is not mentioned and her name is in there. Samson's sin, which is real, his name is in there and his sin is not mentioned. Abraham, who failed drastically, is not mentioned. Sarah, who was culpable, her name is there, but her sexual sin is not mentioned. Well, what in the world is happening? Why would you put them in the hall of faith and not showcase everything they did? It was because they're in there, not because of how great they were. They're in there because of how great their God was. And he looks at them, though they were guilty, it's like God takes this eraser and he omits all of this stuff out of their lives. And what he puts before us is the importance of faith, faith, believing in the work of Jesus Christ, believing and trusting and resting in him. It changes your identity. Notice what Paul does not call them in this text. Look at what he says in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as his beloved children. Notice what it says in chapter 5, verse 8. Walk as children. You've got to get that, family. If you're struggling with sexual sin and your heart is ensnared and entangled, <coughs> Jesus has good news for you. He says, rest in me and I will forgive And I will die in your place. That is the good news. You have to start there with the good news of the gospel. The work of Christ not only deals with the penalty in guilt, it also deals with the power of sin over you that that bondage has been destroyed. We were in darkness. We were enslaved. We were powerlessness. We were looking to find satisfaction and sexual pleasure. And in Christ, right, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So notice what it says in verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. One of the out, great outworkings of the gospel is that you are not alone in the struggle, the Father loves you as a beloved child. The, the Son has saved you as a younger sister or brother, and the Spirit lives inside of you. And so that longing for intimacy that we project out and project onto other people, God says no. I you have a God-sized hole in your heart, and I'm going to occupy it. We are indwelled by the Spirit. You are not alone to fight this. You are not alone. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother and there is Holy Spirit who doesn't come upon you. He does something even better, family. He takes residence in you. And so we're not talking about you conquering this with your might. We're talking about the real spirit of God who is in you to help you. And that is yours. If you are in Jesus, that is yours. The work of Christ helps us see intimacy as a gift. That that longing for deep intimacy, it's been satisfied by the spirit and anything beyond that. I think the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom. And here's what I mean, right? Let's be really honest. I know it's a lot of single people in here right now. You're like, man, what does this mean for me? Here's what this means for you. It means that you have a desire for intimacy in a lot of different ways. Friendship. A warm embrace. Companionship. Someone to cry with. Someone to serve. And sexual intimacy is, is, is a part of that. But here's the thing that is on mute right now. Or until the Lord gives you a spouse, that gift is not yours yet. And what the Holy Spirit does for you in your singleness is it lets you say, Amen. I see it now. And I will accept good gifts you give me in the season you give them to me. And if your hand has not given me this, then your spirit will help me to see that. You get it? That's the way the spirit works. That's my prayer, family, is that by the gospel, we will be being made new. And this is ours. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. And I pray for... Purity I pray for Christ's likeness. I pray for strength. I pray for deep friendships. You made us to connect with one another. I pray that uh, we might find joy in that. I praise you for the work of Christ on the cross. You've set us free. You have erased us and who we were and you have looked upon us as beloved sons and daughters. I pray for those who are in relationships where betrayal has happened. I pray that the gospel would go there and and you would give hope, that we would look upon one another in ways that the gospel uh, looks upon us. I pray for patience and faithfulness and all of these good things. May you be honored and glorified in Christ's name, amen.